Good morning, Heritage Church. It's uh, great to be with you guys today. When Aaron sent out the <coughs> email, the SOS, uh, as him and his family are recovering, um, I realized I was probably uh, the one preacher that wasn't preaching at the same time as the other guys that he <laughs> reached out to. So, And uh, your pastor and I are friends. Uh, we went and had breakfast not too long ago and we're just chatting about our churches and he loves you and he loves the ministry here and so I'm honored to be here for my brother and help him out. Our text for this morning is uh, from 1 John. I'm going to start in chapter 1 and read to chapter 2 and verse 6. This letter is written by the apostle when he's pretty advanced in age. Scholars would put him somewhere in his early 80s, likely. So he's old and uh Sometimes when you get old, I mean, I'm turning 47 this year, so here I am at the end of my life, and when you get old, um, you can get cynical, you can get angry, but the apostle uh, in his old age is not cynical or angry. In fact, he's quite tender. Um, he's tough as nails, but he's tender, and he writes with, this letter is very warm. He calls them little children, my children, and you can just sense the warmth in his in his uh, voice, and this is the voice, I think, that the church needs in the last two years that we've been having. We need the comfort of someone who's got the been there, done that, suffering t-shirt. If hard times were Pokemon, the apostles had them all, and we just need that voice to whisper in our ear, which is an echo of the voice of our Heavenly Father who says, I'm with you, and I'm going to carry you through this. And so in a, in a world that is constantly draining our joy, this text calls us to have a, a replenishing and a refueling of our joy. 1 John chapter 1, starting in verse 1. That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we looked upon and have touched with our hands concerning the word of life, the life that was made manifest, and we've seen it, and we testify to it. We proclaim to you the eternal life which was with the Father and was made manifest to us, that's what, that which we have seen and heard we proclaim also to you. That you too may have fellowship with us. And indeed our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. And we're writing these things so that your joy may be complete. That this message which we have heard from him and proclaim to you. That God is light and in him there is no darkness at all. If we say we have fellowship with him while we walk in darkness, we lie. We do not practice the truth. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another. And the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say that we've not sinned, we make him a liar and his word is not with us. My little children, I'm writing these things to you that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father. Jesus Christ, the righteous. He is the propitiation for our sins. And not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. And by this, we know that we have come to know him if we keep his commandments. Whoever says, I know him, but doesn't keep his commandments is a liar. The truth is not in him. But whoever keeps his word, in him truly the love of God is perfect. By this, we know that we are in him. Whoever says he abides in him ought to walk in the same way in which he walked. This is God's word. 
this letter is intended to draw us into joy. You see it in verse 4. This is why I'm writing this. The purpose of this letter, I want your joy to be complete. And joy is not like happiness that can get swept away with a wave of adversity and a wave of problems. Um, Christianity isn't stoicism, so Christian maturity doesn't look like, you know, we've just got a stone cold, not faced by things. I mean, we're emotional people. We feel deeply. But what he's getting at here is he's wanting us to have a joy in the soul, which is not like happiness that's sort of hopelessly tethered to circumstance, but there's a buoyancy in joy. It's like a buoyancy in the soul. So that regardless of what is happening, we don't sink in what everybody else is sinking in, but rather that by God's grace and by his indwelling spirit, uh, we are uh, kept in joy. And so John wants it to be repeatedly filled with joy in this world that is constantly full of opportunities to drain our joy. To have your joy complete, complete in the Greek is pleres, and pleres means to be well supplied. So John's desire for the children, the picture of Christian maturity, looks not like endless joy, not like a weird plastic smile that never goes away, not like saying I'm too blessed to be stressed and every time someone asks me how we're doing, we're just like, ha ha, praise the Lord. The joy, real joy, is being well supplied. Well supplied with strength, well supplied with this empowering presence of God that gives a slow rise to the soul, the buoyancy regardless of what it is that we're going in. Because we burn through it. I have an old car that I drive, it's from 1995, and it burns oil. And so when I check the oil, I expect it to be low because this is just how it is. And John is writing to his little children knowing our souls just burn through joy. And we need our joy to be complete. So he begins in, in verse 1 with, you know, the manifest Jesus Christ, God who comes into the eternal. I'm sorry, the eternal that comes into the material. And he begins by magnifying the implications of this, of course, because the world is always surprised by the way it is, or saddened by the way that it is, or outraged by the way that it is. And John just basically doesn't want the church to ever be surprised at the way that it is. Our reactions should never be that we're, you know, just as surprised as everybody else. He begins with Jesus, God manifest coming and becoming material. And in the beginning of the text, he takes a lot of time to say, we saw and we touched and we heard and we felt. And he's making it historical and practical and grounding it because Christian faith is not just theological or spiritual. It is historical. It is material. This is 85 AD. This is about 30, or sorry, this is somewhere between 45 to 50 years after the resurrection. And John is saying to the church, our hope is in something that actually happened in human history. And he's tethering them to this on purpose because the world is always freaked out about the way that it is. And he wants the church to realize that our, the resurrection of Jesus Christ means this life is not all that there is. And if you're grounded deeply in the, in the truth that this life is not all that there is, you're not quite so easily swayed by the world, regardless of things going sideways and two years of pandemics and an uncertain future. We just are not simply moved the same way everybody else is moved by it because we know that this life is not all that there is. You see, the Greco-Roman understanding of, of the Christian faith, and to be frank, most people in Kitchener-Waterloo, the understanding of the Christian faith is they think, oh yeah, the Christians think that after they die, we, they leave here and they go to heaven. My friends, that is... If you want that kind of idea of the, uh, of the afterlife, quote-unquote, the New Testament never teaches that we leave here. It's not evacuation. It's restoration. And there's a monster difference. If you want evacuation, you know who talks that way? Plato and Plutarch. 
Read Plato, read Plutarch, and they all sound like this. Oh, leave the material and spend eternity in the, in the ethereal. But what John is getting at is, no, the resurrection of Jesus Christ, the bodily resurrection, teaches us things. Grace is not doing away with the material. It is the restoring of the material. The resurrection of Jesus Christ means that in the end, regardless of your eschatology and how you think the end times work out, let's just say for the sake of unity this morning, we're all pan-tribs, okay? It's all going to pan out. At the end of that, at the end of your, you know, breakdown of the, the end of things, what ends up happening is... The poetry in Revelation 21 and 22 is the poetry is the image of the New Jerusalem coming down, a city coming down. So the Bible is a glorious bookend. It starts in a garden, it ends in a garden city. It starts with God saying flourish and create civilization, and it ends with a flourishing and civilization. So the Christian faith at bottom is the belief that the physical resurrection of Jesus Christ means not the doing away of all things, but the restoration of all things. In the end, it is the world we wish we had that is evading us. The reason why the world is so freaked out is because we're homeless utopians. We've said, oh, we don't believe that there's a God and we're going to get rid of the divine. We will save ourselves through education and wisdom and, and politics and civil life and innovation and advancement. We will save ourselves. And we've been telling ourselves that since the Enlightenment. And now we're tired with our own message because the world doesn't seem to be getting better. There's bright, bright spots in beauty. You can always find generosity and love and sacrifice and glorious Wonderful things in the world, and you don't need to be a Christian to accomplish any of those things. There's lots of atheists, agnostics, Muslims, and Hindus that love their neighbor in practical ways and use their gifts to make the city flourish. So you can find all of that stuff. The problem is we live in the paradox where there is greed, destruction, oppression, racism, endless catalogs of evil and sadness and sorrow, and both of those things are true. And the world is sick of both of those things being true. And they keep saying, well, we, see, we love the beauty, but we hate the gross darkness if we could just educate ourselves and get rid of the darkness. John begins this letter by saying, kids, if you, if you want to live a life of joy that is complete, that's completely replenished, where you're not swept away by what, everything else that everybody else is getting swept away in, you've got to get rooted and grounded in the reality of the physical resurrection of Jesus Christ. The physical resurrection teaches us things, right? When Jesus says, I'm hungry, you got anything, and they give him a fish, and he eats the fish, that teaches us something. That's not how you write poetry. <laughs> That's not how you write mythology. That's how you record history. And the reason Jesus ate the fish is because it teaches us that in the end is the restoration of all things. This is what separates us, my friends, the Christian faith, from the other world faiths where you are essentially escaping the material. It's quite frankly not what any of our souls really want. Most of us, when we were kids, people would talk about heaven and we would watch the Christmas plays growing up in church. You see a lot of people in bathrobes. You see a lot of styrofoam props. And you think to yourself, I don't know, this isn't that exciting. I kind of like being human. Well, the good news of the gospel is that Jesus was the personification of God made manifest. Who, the deity who takes on humanity is humanity perfected. This is where it's all going. This is why John starts there. This is why it's so significant. Because your joy is always going to get drained if you don't think deeply about the significance of Jesus. After that, the text moves on. And you can find it in verse sort of 2 and 3. Where John really wants the church to have this conscious awareness of their salvation like a conscious awareness of 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 the goodness of the gospel and it's not like this spiritual thing that sits over here he wants them to be conscious of it because later as the letter unpacks and he gets into gnosticism and the problems in the world and you get to chapter five and he says 
we are of God and the world is of the evil one. If you don't get all of this stuff, your attitude's going to be wrong by the time you get to chapter 5. And you're going to be like, we are of God and the world is of the evil one. Off with their heads. And which is like not the attitude of Jesus. So we have to understand this at the beginning. The significance of understanding your, um, uh, what you and I have in the gospel. The significance of it is that it's like the inheritance that we have in Jesus ceases to be this ethereal thing and it becomes a day-to-day source of strength. Like if you came into an inheritance of $100 million and the lawyer gave you the check and you said, wow, $100 million, is this mine? Yes, it's really yours. Can anybody take this away from me? No, nobody can take this away from you. Thank you. You put it in the drawer. So it's yours, yes. Can anybody take it away from you? No. Doctrine of assurance. Doctrine of salvation by grace and faith alone apart from works. Amen and amen. But, you, but if you just sort of put that in the drawer, then day to day, when a microbe on the other side of the world goes sideways and the world comes screeching to a halt and then all of the world is freaking out because all of their gods are in the coffin. They made their god politics, but the politicians aren't really sure and they're doing their best, so we want to pray for them. But you, So they sort of fumble around, and they, so that god is in the coffin. Some people made their health the coffin, but now they're afraid of getting sick or they're afraid of the implications of, of this sort of thing. And it, there's been deaths, you know, crazy preventable deaths all over the world and that's been a reality and so if health has been your god health is in the coffin i mean all the gods are in the coffin and so we have to have a sense of our inheritance and assurance that's not just sort of in a drawer somewhere going yeah i'm saved i'm a christian but that day to day it has an impact it is actually helpful in our lives so let's move into three things this morning that I hope we can grab from this text. That was just my introduction, so it didn't count for any of the time. The sermon starts now. I'm just kidding. I know you have children. We have a lot of children at Redeemer, and, it's, and, and my wife runs all of the, the uh, she's the children's director, so she's always like, land the plane, brother. You know, so I'm always aiming for 25-minute sermons. And uh, because uh, my wife knows people's attention spans. Anyway, we're going to look at three things this morning um, from this text that I hope will be helpful. The problem of darkness, that's the first thing. The second thing is the grace of our advocate. And the last thing is the life of light and love united to Christ. So first, the problem of darkness. So he uses this language you see in verses 5 through 7 about walking in darkness and walking in light. And it's strong and intentional language. It's not simply walking, it's not simply sinning. Because as I read through the text, we established everybody sins. Christians sin, you sin, this preacher sins. We have an advocate, we confess our sin. But so to walk in darkness and walk in light, that's a different conversation. That's about two different realms, two different ways of living and thinking and loving, two different sets of appetites, two different orientations of the mind, orientations of the heart. It's just two different walks. So Christians don't walk in light, and then when they sin, now they're walking in darkness, and they're walking in... That's not the way the apostle uses the language. He's already established that you can sin whether you're a Christian or not, but to walk in something is, 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 the, is the direction and the intention of your life. There's a phrase that was uh, sort of uh, familiar in the Hebrew culture, which was to be covered in the dust of your rabbi, which is a way of saying you're walking so closely to your mentors that the dust is getting kicked up off the sandals and it's covering you because that's how closely you want to follow their life. So to walk in darkness, to walk in light, what, what the apostle is appealing to is that we ought to be following Jesus in such a way, he's so enthralled with him and who he is and what he has done, that his ways become our ways. And so we get this sort of um, distinction here. And the importance of this 
is uh, that after he talks about walking in light, encouraging you and I to walk in light, he doesn't give a long Leviticus list of sins. He doesn't rewrite it. This is a short letter. In the Greek, it's like one page, both, both sides. So what he does is he's inviting us as the church to meditate and reflect on what is it that's causing us to sin. And does it matter to us if we sin? Because the indicator of the indwelling power of the Spirit is the struggle with sin. That's the good, see, that's the good news about it. If there's no struggle with sin, you're walking in darkness. The thing with the darkness is you're bumping into everything all the time. You bump into it so much, it becomes normal. This pain is normal. This is normal. The problem with darkness is your eyes adjust to the darkness. So you're like, this is how life is. The problem with darkness is you don't see it as sin. Because after all, you're the king. So if you're the king, of course, everything you want, think, desire, all the appetites of your heart, your ideologies, well, of course, those are right. How could they be wrong? Because after all, you're the king. You sit on the throne of your own heart. That's to walk in darkness. But if Christ is king and the spirit is indwelling us, then our sin actually bothers us, which leads, that's why the passage moves into confession. So the problem of darkness is we don't see any of this. If you think back to Genesis 3, the way in which sin is depicted in the Old Testament, the, the way that flows out is they eat a piece of fruit it's not an act of violence they're not fighting each other and they're not violating each other they're not lying and stealing and cheating and oppressing they're not they're not doing all the all the long the 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 laundry list of sins that typically hit the sermon you know the sermons let's talk about sin and then it ends up the big three you know sex power and you know rock and roll we're going to go down these things when you look at sin in genesis 3 it's depicted as eating fruit so this teaches us a number of things. I mean, you can love the wrong thing. Or you can love a good thing in the wrong way. Or you can take something that God says is not good and decide that it is good. I mean, it teaches us a number of things. But what we get in the image of them partaking of the fruit is, I'll be God. I'll decide what's right. I'll decide what's true. I'll decide what fulfills me. And in the end, I'll fulfill my life apart from God because I am God. Our English translations will say, you know, the temptation from the enemy was you will be like God. And in the Hebrew, the word like is not there because the language just the way that it is. It just says you will be God, which I think is a stronger, better understanding of what was going on there. Is the temptation was sever this relationship. So to walk in darkness is to have that relationship severed. That's the problem of darkness. To walk in light, of course, is to want that relationship to be continued and flourishing and so then when we do sin we hate it we want to turn from it so when it moves to the text moves from uh verses 9 and 10 into confession and we're called into the confession of sin confession is joy now it's not knuckle dragging and i think when we think about confessing our sin uh the cultural understanding of that is that it's sort of knuckle dragging but there is a we are saddened by it we hate that we do it we want to turn from it, live to the glory of our Savior. Your pastor is going to do a series on the, on the armor of God, which is a series of metaphors and images and pictures of putting on the very nature of Christ. So we, that's what we want to do. And so therefore, because verse 4 says, I'm writing this so that you will, your joy will be complete. And I'm going to invite you to confession. There is a joy in confession because we realize that we are right now just a shadow of our future selves. While we're here on this, you know, living this life, we're never going to be perfected, but we're a shadow of our future selves. You know, when people are sick, you know, or you see people on their deathbed, sometimes the phrase gets used, 
they're a shadow of their former selves. You're at a funeral and they, they dress up the corpse and, they, and, and, you're, and you're saddened and you look at the corpse and there's something about you like, ugh, they're like a shell of their former selves. It's them, but it's not them. We right now are that shadow of our future selves. Therefore, confession is, there is joy in it. Because you realize, no, 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 this is not what I love. I love my Savior. I want to image him and imitate him and live to his glory. And so this, this exercise of confession, this is what makes us good ministers in the city. This is what it's, makes us attractive ministers in the city because we're humbled. And it, it drains, of, drains us of our pharisaical pride. The goal of Christian faith is not to become so somehow sanctified in our own eyes that there's less and less need for confession. What? If you think Christian maturity is less and less need for confession, that just means you're less and less aware of your sin. Maturity is I become actually more and more aware of the ways in which I sin. But I don't just live my life weeping on the couch because of that. I do hate it. And yet, but I want to turn in glory and live to the glory of my Savior. The problem of darkness is that's just not a, that desire is not there. So we move on now to the grace of our advocate. The entire Bible is pointing to the advocate. It is impossible for me to understate the importance of the advocate. Exodus, Leviticus, and Deuteronomy, all of the imagery, all of the temple imagery, all of the signs and symbols and ceremonies, it is all pointing forward to Jesus Christ, the advocate. And because this is true, and the work of all the priests and everything is a, is a picture of who this advocate would be and what he had come to do, we get tremendous language where the text says, we just read it, his sin not, was sufficient, not just for ours, but for the whole world. Which is not teaching universalism, by the way, because that would be a contradiction to the sentences that came before that, which are in, which are in saying there's, there's walking in light, there's walking in darkness, the whole div Bible is divided up into that. The Bible doesn't divide us up into good people and bad people, which is a pharisaical way of thinking about it. Righteous and wicked means, righteous means you're in Christ, wicked means you're not. The categories of the Bible are not good and bad, they're dead and alive. It's all pointing to Jesus. If you're in him, you're alive. If you're not in him, you're dead. So Christian maturity it, it looks like realizing there is a grace in this advocate that is so amazing. It was sufficient for the whole world. That's why the apostle uh, uses that language. It's about sufficiency and efficacy. It's sufficient for the whole world, but it's only effective for all of us who will turn and place our faith in Jesus and, and believe in him and in his resurrection and the restoration of all things. You know, there was a, 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 a significant uh, point to be made here about the advocate. And the question is, when you have an advocate who stands for you and defends you and fights for you, this is what the advocate does. Who is Jesus, your advocate, standing against? Is he, is he standing toe-to-toe -to -toe against the judge? Is he against his father? Is he against a God who's just got his hand on the gavel going, any second now, I'm going to just... Is this the image that you have of God? That Jesus is going, no, no, wait, God, please, no, I paid the price for the sin. Remember the cross? And God's like, why, I oughta? I grew up hearing a lot of sermons that sounded like that. There's a lot of books that are written that sound like that. If you have any, feel free to burn them. They're not the Bible. Burn them. Oh, our advocate is fighting for us, but he's not fighting against a judge who's like inclined to punish and destroy you. The judge sent the advocate. Look at the text. The text says the advocate is with the Father. 
with him. Not just like coming into the courtroom every time you and I sin, which is every day, multiple times, and going, wait, please, don't destroy them. I know you, that's not, the father sent the advocate. This is significant. During the time this letter was written, there was a heretic, his name was Marcion, and Marcion is known for, Mar- for, for a number of heresies, but one of them was, you've got this wonderful Jesus in the New Testament, and this evil ogre in the Old Testament, and the ogre in the Old Testament can't possibly be his father, so the idea of Marcionism is get rid of the Old Testament, unhitch from the Old Testament. Right? And, and because of this, this, this picture of God being this ogre, God is not a cosmic ogre. God, the Father, moved heaven and earth to get the advocate to us. God moved in undeserving grace from Genesis 3 on. What was God's response when they destroyed perfection in the, in the garden? He didn't backhand them into the stratosphere. He, that's when the proto-evangelon, the first gospel, was ever preached in Genesis 3 to the devil. To, in the Hebrew, the Satan, the accuser. So in Genesis 3, you've got the Satan, the accuser. Here we've got the advocate. The advocate is not going toe-to-toe against the judge. The judge sent the advocate for you. He's going toe-to-toe against your accuser. He's going toe-to-toe against our accuser, the one who would say to us, look at what you did this week. Look at how you thought this week. Look at what's going on in your heart and in your mind. Look at the ways in which you can be loving, but you're not. You know, don't, go, don't worship with your brothers and sisters. Pull back from church. Pull back from community. You're a facade. You're a joke. You're not welcome. The advocate reminds you and I that when we feel least qualified is when we are most invited. The father, the judge, the father is not an angry ogre on the porch, arms crossed, waiting to judge and destroy you. He is the father on the porch who, when he sees the prodigal, runs off the porch to welcome us back in. That's why confession in 1 John is an invitation into joy. Because your confession is not met with, why I oughta, oh, you're lucky for G, a good thing you got an advocate. I was just about to, why I oughta, this cosmic abuser. No, 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 no. It's, confession is joy because it's met with a ring and a robe. That's the father who sent the advocate. John 3, 16, for God so loved the world he gave his son. 2 Corinthians 5, God is reconciling the world to himself through you and I. This is the heart of the father, the glory of the father and all that it means. He, it, the text says Jesus Christ, the righteous. You and I stand in a borrowed righteousness. You and I are welcome to the Father, not on the basis of our meaningful but imperfect attempts at holiness. We are welcome because of his advocacy. We stand in a borrowed holiness. We stand because of the goodness of God, of what he has done for us through Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ, the righteous. Christ was righteous by nature, You and I are declared righteous by faith. Christ's nature is righteous. Your your nature is not righteous. Your nature, my nature, not righteous. That's why we are invited into constant confession. And if we think, oh, no, 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 I'm very sanctified. I, I hope this guy never comes and preaches a heritage again. This is terrible. I'm very mature and very sanctified, and I am righteous. You're not righteous. You're standing in a borrowed righteousness. And as long as you believe you are righteous, then you resemble some people from the scriptures, but it's not the humility of the apostles, it's the Pharisees. They had checked all the boxes and Jesus never called them righteous. They were checking the boxes more than anybody. Their commitment to spiritual disciplines and morality was higher than anyone's and Jesus never said good job. They were constantly misrepresenting the heart of the Father. Do you know how many laws there are in the Torah? 
613. Nobody was keeping them better than those guys. But they believed that they were somehow righteous and people always felt worse after being around them. This is what makes it you and I good ministers of the gospel in this city. It's because we are humbled by the grace of God and now we can go out with great boldness and confidence because it is not the wisdom of the words with which we use or the, 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 um, the holiness uh, uh, of our lives that is drawing people to Christ. It is the goodness of God that leads to repentance. And so we relate to our holiness and our righteousness like we're standing in a borrowed holiness and righteousness. And that is what invites us into humility and just drains us of pharisaical pride. The text goes on to call Jesus the propitiation for our sins. Propitiation means to satisfy, to render favorable, to turn away displeasure. Question, what is God's posture towards you? What is it? My friends, I have good news. It's pleasure. It's not, well, it's pleasure when I am obedient, and then as soon as I'm disobedient, it's displeasure. Pleasure, displeasure. Pleasure, displeasure. Pleasure, displeasure. Let's just play this out. You're like, oh, man, we invited a preacher who's soft on sin. I can't believe it. No, I'm going to elevate. I'm not going to be soft on sin. I want to elevate the gravity of sin. The wage of sin is, okay, so... If God is not, ha if God the Father does not have a, pos a posture of pleasure towards you, then what's left? Wrath and judgment. How do we understand wrath and judgment? Well, you can't understand wrath and judgment, the, the, the Hebrew unfolding of wrath and judgment without understanding God's tears. If you divorce wrath from God's tears, you don't understand wrath. If you divorce judgment from God's tears you don't understand judgment it was God's tears his love that motivated since Genesis 3 the advocate so the propitiation of our sins means God's because of the advocate is turned towards you with pleasure yeah but if you preach this way the church is just going to run off into sin why would you do that that that's darkness so the people who hear, hear about the advocacy and the propitiation of sin and then run off into wild sin are not true believers. That's why John uses the language and goes, well, you're a liar. You see, he's old, so he doesn't want to waste papyrus. He's just like, well, you're a liar then. Right? Because the people who read this and get the grace and get the propitiation for sin, they want to run off and, and, and live to the glory of their Savior. And so the significance of being the propitiation for sin is that when the priests in the Old Testament brought propitiation for sin, it was temporal. Jesus' propitiation for your sin is not temporal. It's eternal. That's why the Father's position towards you is pleasure. Full stop. Yes, but doesn't God hate it when I sin? Of course he does. But here's, what, here's where you and I have difficulty grasping the magnitude of God's grace. This is what propels us to hate our sin. Here's what, here's what it is. Our father is not like earthly fathers, but quite often the way that we try and understand God is we project human ideas onto God. So here's what we think of. We go, well, human parents, they're happy when we obey and they're not happy when we disobey. So therefore God's that way. You're obeying me, pleasure. Disobeying me, displeasure. There, there's God. Okay, I get that. I'm a father. I have three kids. I get that. Small caveat. Are you the Alpha and Omega 
beginning and end outside time? Answer, no. Our Father is the Alpha and the Omega. Jesus, the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. He sees all of eternity. He is outside of time. He came into our time, praise God, but he transcends time. So what does this mean? What is his disposition? This is the doctrine of assurance. This is the doctrine of salvation by grace and faith alone. This, if we remove this, then we end up with something that's quite a bit more like our Muslim friends. When I've talked with Muslims about the Quran and I ask them about, you know, how do they understand that they are, in the end, are accepted by Allah? The answer is always, your good outweighs the bad. Nabil Qureshi wrote a book called uh, Seeking Allah, Finding Jesus. He was a, 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 a scholar of the Quran. And in his book, he's very clear on the fact that you never really know where you stand with Allah. So you, 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 the point is to is to emulate through the hadith, the, 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 emulate the life of Muhammad and pray the prayers of the Quran, and you're to do these things to the best of your ability so that in the end, you know you're accepted because until then, you never really know. And my friends, that is not the teaching of the New Testament, that you never really know. That is not the teaching that God's, well, maybe he has your pleasure, maybe not pleasure. I mean, are you, are you sinning right now? Well, then you have displeasure. The, the answer to the question, what is God's position before me, is he is a father on the porch, ready to leap to welcome the prodigal home. And when that picture grasps your heart, you will hate your sin. You'll want to live to the glory of your Savior. When this gripped my heart back in 2010, I didn't say, well, thank God for grace. Let's just run off into wild sin. I planted a church. It motivates us to desire to live to the glory of our Savior. Last thing as I close this morning is the, the life of love united to Christ. He wants us to live in this fellowship. You see it in verses 3 and 4. He wants us to enjoy the fellowship of the Father, enjoy the fellowship of the Son. And fellowship is never mechanical. It's not like, you know, as a musician, we've got great musicians up here, and your musicians can analyze music. They can break it down, but, but they don't just stay there. <laughs> Otherwise, you lose the majesty of the piece. You lose the beauty of the art. You lose the you lose the emotion of the symphony. You don't just break it all down. So the goal of the Christian life is not just continually just kind of break this all down. Boy, uh, his sermon was four out of ten. It could have been a five if he went into the second declension Greek, but he didn't. So oh. we're not just break it all down. Sort of like theological you know, mechanics that know where all the bolts go in the engine, but we never drive with the wind blowing in our hair. Just sort of enjoying the, just the glory of God and the wonder of his grace. So the, the light of love, you know, united to Christ, what John is getting at when he's saying, you know, by this we know him. The, the, the text ends with sort of, we know him if we keep his commands. So now, in light of everything that I've said this morning, the motivator for keeping the commands is not like, if you love me, you'll do the dishes. It's not like that's not what Jesus is up to when he's like, if you love me, you'll keep my commands. We, sometimes we hear it that way. He's like saying the natural byproduct of love is this. It's not tit for tat, if then. It's the, the natural byproduct of this love is you will want this. This is the image of the branch and the vine. If we are united to the vine, resembling the vine is inevitable. The reason why Galatians 5 uses fruit as a picture of the indwelling work of the Spirit in you is that it is inevitable. United to Christ, inevitable. The life of Christ, the life of love. This is what we want. This is what we desire. This is the driving force in our life to, to image him and to reflect him. 
When fruit grows, it is gradual. So gradual, it is imperceptible. But not only gradual and imperceptible, eventual. And this is the life that you and I are called into, to walk in the light. You know, not just sort of checking off the things that the one that you love wants you to do, but finding that as our love for Christ deepens, the thing that he wants us to do, this is exactly what we want to do. This whole thing started in verse 1 by the apostle saying, I saw him and looked upon him. And that's how I want to close the sermon, because this is how we live lives of joy. This is how we walk in the light. See and look upon. He's not repeating himself. Those are two different things. See, you can walk down the street and give something a cursory look and see it. He, John's like, I saw Christ. Saw him. But he spent the last 50 years of his life looking upon him. To look upon is to wonder and to gaze and to emphasize and to interrogate and to just marinate and to meditate. You and I, church, we come, we gather, we see him, we look upon him. Love always manifests by taking on the likeness of the object of its desires. May our love for Jesus always manifest in taking on his likeness as he is the object of our desire. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for the goodness of your word. Would you continue what you have begun in this church? May we live to your glory. May we learn to confess our sin, turn from it, live to the glory of our Savior. Walk in the light because we are mesmerized by you. May this be a church that is not just fixated on precepts, but that they love a person. They love their king that they are motivated and driven by the glory of their Savior. I pray in Jesus' name.